0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, August 15th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 125 poets in 14 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate, and donate either via PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Zach Simmel, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Dreams I've Had About You, and my poem, Babylon. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of August 16th. On Monday, August 16th, from 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground Playing Clean Open Mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, First Peoples Fund will be hosting their Oglala Lakota Art Space Studio Conversation with Layli Long Soldier. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 546 Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 546 On Tuesday, August 17th from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their weekly First Draft Open Mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash First Draft. Again, that's at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash First Draft. From 3 to 5 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Hard Time Stanford Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground Playing Dirty Open Mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground On Wednesday, August 18th, from 3 to 5 p.m., Mountain Daylight Time, Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Hard Times Arvada Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Do More Baltimore will be hosting their World Tour Poetry Club. You can find out more information at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. Again, that's at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Louis Resto. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore Again, that's at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops dot html. On Thursday, August 19th, from 6.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Calling All Poets series will be hosting there Be the feature open mic, this time featuring Rescue Poetics. You can find out more information at callingallpoets.net forward slash events. Again, that's at callingallpoets.net forward slash events. From 4 to 5, 30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Quince Orchard Library will be hosting their Teen Write Poetry for Teens, 13 and up. You can find out more information at mcpl.libnet.info forward slash event. Again, that's at mcp.l.libnet. Info slash event. From 3 to 5 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Hard Times Edgewater Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at LighthouseWriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at LighthouseWriters.org forward slash workshops. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Nui TV will be hosting their Nui has Got Talent with CJ Gritz which showcases indigenous youth between 13 and 25 via Instagram live you can find out more information at rsvp at nuijinan tv on instagram that's n w e j i n a n t v on instagram again that's n w e j i n a n t v on instagram from 8 to 10 p m central daylight time The South Dakota State Poetry Society will be hosting their weekly Electric Poetry Garden. You can find out more information at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. Again, that's at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. From 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Poetry Center San Jose and the Willow Glen Library will be hosting their third Thursday's open mic, hosted by poet Lisa Metley, featuring Veronica Kornberg. You can find out more information at sjpl.bibliocommons.com forward slash events. Again, that's at sjpl.bibliocommons.com forward slash events. From 7.30 to 9 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, District 4 Poetry will be hosting their monthly Poetry Open Mic. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash district4poetry. 4 is the number 4. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash district4poetry. On Friday, August 20th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop You can find out more information and register with the host Andrina Leanne on Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina Andrina is spelled A N D R E E N A. Leanne is spelled L E E A N N E. From 6 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Warum and Nopal Flower will be hosting their Corona Versus open mic via Instagram Live. At Graciano and Warm, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7.20 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Hudson Valley Writer Center will be hosting their open mic nights hosted by Bill Bushell. You can find out more information at writercenter.org. For slash calendar. Again, that's at writercenter.org forward slash calendar. On Saturday, August 21st from 8 to 9 30 p.m. India Standard Time, our past poet guest Umesh Mohikar will be hosting their Let's Unmesh Life open mic. You can find out more information at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. Again, that's at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. From 2 to 3.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Writing in Color for Teens with Kristen Oldridge. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the same Rokos Poetry Collective will be hosting their Black Innovation from Dunbar to Black Arts to Today a reading with Will Alexander, Hawa Allen, Cornelius 80, Doriel E. Harris, Christopher Funkhauser, John Keen, Iris Kirby, Fred Moulton, Victoria Reyes Asili, Laurie Scheyer, Ron Shavers, Evie Shockley, Jay Simmons, and Nikki Walshleger. You can find out more information and register at buff.ly forward slash number 3M0GJA9. Again, that's buff.ly forward slash 3M0GJA9. Buff is spelled B-U-F-F. On Sunday, August 22nd from 2 to 3.30 p.m., Mountain Daylight Time, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Writing for Happiness and Stress Relief for teens between 15 and 18 years old. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org slash workshops. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their weekly poetry event you can find out more information at keepthemikeon.com. From 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, the Abalone Mountain Press will be hosting their Indigenous Writing Circle. You can find out more information at Abalone Mountain Press on Instagram. Again, that's at Abalone Mountain Press on Instagram. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Zach Simmel. Hi, Zach. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses.
1: Hi, Imogen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to um, to get to be here. I've gotten to listen to a lot of these episodes, and I'm just really excited to get to have a conversation with you.
0: Awesome. So you brought with you your poem, Dreams I've Had About You. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Zach Semmel. I'm a poet and essayist. I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. I did my undergrad in Indiana, and, and I'm now in an MFA program uh, at Northern Arizona University studying mostly creative nonfiction and poetry. Okay, great.
0: <laughs> I wonder if you can tell us when you started getting into poetry, writing poetry.
1: For a pretty long time I was writing fiction, maybe up until I was 22. Mm-hmm. I, like I was fine at it, but there was definitely something missing. I wasn't really super great about writing just fictional narratives and I was writing a lot of autobiographical fiction and I kind of recognized that it felt really inauthentic
2: Mm -hmm. so
1: um, and and then I took the one my the only creative writing professor at my my undergraduate she was writing essays at that time and I took a writing workshop with her and started writing nonfiction exclusively after that
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And from there, we were introduced to lyric essays and different things. And maybe two years after that, I started really moving towards even more lyrical nonfiction. And eventually that just led me to poetry and just writing um, much shorter pieces in poetic forms. Um, I started doing that just this year.
0: Mm. Oh, wow. So you started earnestly getting into poetry while in your MFA?
1: I started this fall. It It was definitely, I would say, this spring. Oh, wow. The pandemic, the pandemic, yeah, we made a lot of life changes, and that was the one that I made to oh. write poetry.
0: Wow, that's amazing, because I thought you were somebody who's very practiced at poetry writing. I mean, these are really wonderful poems that you sent me. Thank you. Yeah, well, I guess this is a great time for you to actually read that poem for us so we can hear a nice demonstration of your poetry. Yeah, Absolutely
3: dreams I've had about you, morning trips to the bowling alley, and no matter who is with us, you always walking next to me, stealing glances at you while we eat ice cream on the roof of our friend's car in the parking lot of the store we'd stolen it from, during a game of manhunt behind a log pile where no one would see. You putting your hand on my shoulder and telling me we could win if we stuck together. Crying in my bathroom, then coming to the gym an hour late to find you waiting by the entrance. Playing basketball one-on-one in the June heat and for once me not being the first to go shirtless. You backing me down, noticing myself touching your body carefully like... It's wet clay spinning in front of me, noticing how you pushing on my back feels like you throwing me down on something soft, feels like our sweat coming together for a second before hitting the dirt and splitting. The afternoon, I first saw your dick and was disappointed. Telling you I was depressed. Your reply that you would help me get better. Rereading it over and over. Trying to believe you. You pounding on my front door for an hour because I'd rather be alone than be with you. You grabbing the finger I'd broken last year and when I begged you to let go, bending it back further. Realizing as you hold me up against a wall to hit me how well my thighs would fit around your hips. The kid who'd call me Jew slamming my head into a locker as you watch, silently hoping that you could feel nothing again with me gone. Us slow dancing to faithfully in the desert, you yelling at me at soccer practice and nobody else seeing what I've done to you. You finally texting me to ask how I am. You never texting me again, and I'm happy, but not the same. Us in the back of a friend's car. Highway wind blowing the summer red off our skin. I make a joke. You call me faggot, and you laugh and maybe even hate me. But still, you stay.
0: Thank you. I have a lot of questions about this poem, but I'm going to start with a technical one, which is that this poem has visual elements to it. And what is interesting is that you have these alternating positions for each stanza, but even within the stanza, you have what people usually associate with line breaks with these four slashes. So I was wondering what you were trying to achieve with these four slashes. Mm
1: -hmm. For sure. I guess... Definitely a couple things. I, mean, I like to play with slashes in general to do what would be irritating if line breaks were doing, which was you know, breaking at two words,
4: <laughs>
2: and having
1: two-word lines, a million of them, and a longer poem.
2: Right.
1: I remember reading an Amelia Phillips piece, and I think it was in Foglifter, that where the potential playfulness of line break really clicked for me, mm. and I really try to do that with slashes and kind of have the reader of turning corners Mm. um, with ambiguous phrases and things like that. Mm. And I think that specifically in this poem, Mm. the effect also is just like with the two columns, that you have more of a sense of fragmentation, which Mm. is, I think, how most people experience or or at least remember dreams, Mm. um, kind of flashes of images that are maybe a little little disjointed and events that don't really totally make sense.
2: Mm.
1: So, yeah, I I definitely say those two effects my main goals.
0: Okay. Yeah, I can I can understand certainly that <laughs> two-word lines might be irritating at some point. Especially <laughs> it's just like a long left-aligned column that just goes on and on
1: and on. Exactly. Exactly. I like reading those, but I, I feel like if it went for six pages, <laughs> I'd
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is definitely visually more interesting and it makes the reader think is like what are those for are those pauses it definitely gives you pause uh, at least mentally it's like huh i have to process this symbol uh, in the middle of reading something so that's fascinating getting into the content of this poem it sounds like you were being very literal when you say this title is dreams i've had about you Is that correct? Are these actual dreams or pieces of events?
1: So kind of both. All of them are dreams I've had, but some of them were dreams in which I was reliving things that did actually happen. Okay. But they were all dreams.
0: Okay. There is a timeline, a progression. It's kind of a fragmented narrative to the story of your relationship with someone. Would you say that this is kind of chronologically in order?
1: It actually isn't. And I often write in a way where I will, even when I'm writing prose, I'll just write down every phrase that I can think of mm. based on a topic. I'll write whole paragraphs, and then I kind of just reorder things. Mm. This actually originally, I think when I wrote it down, came out in chronological order and then... I shifted it around to create an actual narrative. Like the slow dancing to Faithfully in the Desert, that is actually like the first gay dream I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in like fifth grade. Oh wow. And I woke up and was like, what the heck was that? And I was definitely not out or really engaging with queerness at that age. Mm-hmm. And most of these dreams took place much later than that.
2: Okay.
0: So that's your sort of first kind of... Your unconscious making you more conscious of your preferences, or your sorry orientation.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I I, would, I could use both of those words for that uh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, especially I would say the temptation that maybe I wasn't really even thinking about consciously or aware of.
2: Hmm.
0: Does this poem describe one specific person?
1: Yes, it is. Sometimes I like to, especially when I'm not. I can blur this line a little bit more, a little bit less with nonfiction, but especially in poetry, where I can fictionalize a uh-huh. little bit more. I sometimes like to have views that are kind of an amalgam of different people, uh, but right. in, in this specific case, this, these are all, all actual dreams that I had about one person, it, and there is only one person in mind. Okay. For sure.
0: What made you decide to write this particular poem?
1: I wrote about a year ago, really my first piece where I was even moving towards writing about my queerness. Mm -hmm. It was something I'd been definitely aware of, well, very, very aware of, for several years. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't written about it. And then I wrote this piece just cataloging my entire sexual development. Mm -hmm. And it ended with that. Mm -hmm. And it ended with this relationship with this person. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And how it was both a relationship, really, it was just a friendship of discovery for me and also of damage Mm -hmm. and harm Mm -hmm. in terms of my relationship with my own queer identity Mm -hmm. and sexuality Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and this spring really two things happened pandemic hit and Mm -hmm. I knew that I was going to try to use the solitude that I was being uh, forced into Mm -hmm. to um, explore some different things in my writing Mm -hmm. and I just committed my mfa program where i knew that there were a lot of queer folks and mm. this is something that i just wanted to dive into more in my own mind
2: mm.
1: and i'm living at my parents house i was and mm. you know that's a that's a space that's a space where i think um we fall into our old, old habits
2: and mm-hmm.
1: in my case that old habit was repression <laughs> profound repression oh god and and i definitely saw i, I was moving and i was moving into a space where I knew I was going to be around a lot of queer artists. And so I was like, I'm going to just really think about this more and think about how I want to express myself as a queer person. And so I started looking into this relationship. And when I started to think about it, I actually had several of these dreams in a very short span of time. And yeah, I was just careful to write them down and over maybe just a couple of days, I was just like, oh, I've had a, I've had a lot of dreams about this person over the years, haven't I? Mm-hmm. And and then the piece just came together. I, so I just wanted to expand upon that first queer piece that I'd written, where a lot of it was about this relationship. I just, I was just like, I just want to get into this as far as I can and maybe give it the whole poem.
2: Mm-hmm. Whereas
1: it was just kind of a side thing in that other piece.
2: Right,
1: right. It was clearly something I just hadn't processed enough. Right, right.
2: We're right. having
1: a lot of dreams about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely seems like even reading this, a lot of these vignettes seem so clear that a reader might not be able to tell for sure whether or not these are dreams, even though the title is dreams, but dreams could also mean daydreams or reveries, you know, things like that. So it's uh-huh. it's not quite clear when a reader reads this poem if these are things that happen or not. I mean, that's why I asked you the first question but going back to what you just said is um like living at your parents house this thing of repression is this something that's overt repression is this something that's more covert where you feel like your parents might not understand
1: i would definitely say that we're just that conversations about sexuality in general Mm. have not been a large part were not a large part of my life Mm. especially as a teenager Mm really, I think the big thing is, at least for for me, and I I definitely recognize that for a lot of people, and especially for queer people, that messaging, there's a lot of discomfort in the messaging that they get from Mm. family members. Mm -hmm. Really, for me, it's, I think that the most challenging thing about living in that, in this space Mm -hmm. is that, is that I just kind of, I kind of fall back into my own old habits just by being in this place where I was through my childhood. And, mm. and I kind of, <laughs> if, if I might have been um, more repressed or more self-destructive, I, I kind of fall back into those tendencies.
2: Mm.
1: And when it comes to repression, it, it definitely happens. And just being in my hometown, where you know I did have experiences of homophobia as a teenager, mm-hmm. it definitely kind of, it feels like I'm going back into things mm. that I don't necessarily want to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. just by being here.
2: <laughs>
0: right, right. Yeah. Understandable. Well, I'm, I'm glad um, that at least your participation in the F- MFA and in the setting of the MFA will expose you to more a uh, queer-friendly environment, so that at least you have that safe space, even if that space is only virtual at this moment.
1: For sure, for sure. I've been really lucky to be able to just go on like social distance, masked walks with other students. Uh, thankfully, everyone is really sad and frustrated to not be seeing each other in person. And and most students were in Flagstaff and were being very proactive about actually getting to <laughs> interact with each other in person and in safe way. So I, I did get to have that. Get to interact with some yeah. with with other queer folks in person, which was really special and important. Oh, that's great. Including staff. Oh, that's wonderful. Faculty, which is great, too.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful to hear. So back to your poem and the content of it, in the narrative that you set out, the timeline seems like, you know, you started off as there is some innocence, there is some friendship, and really good, close friendship, too. And then there is, you know, the conflict, the frictions, and then also... Unhealthy aspects of somebody who's actually hurting you physically and, and also mentally, because it's not only just something like bending your broken finger backwards, even though you're saying ouch, and then calling you by the F name, and also maybe not defending you when you experience anti Semitism in front of that person. So, I, I was wondering if you want to talk about those experiences and why you decided to go with this particular progression.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't really think I selected dreams or cut out any. I really put in every dream that I've had about this person. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I was doing that, I came to recognize a theme Mm
2: -hmm.
1: which was just this sense of I think I felt a lot of betrayal in this friendship and both just relationally and in terms of the fact that I think I had a crush on this person mm-hmm. and and that just wasn't reciprocated mm. I never communicated that to them mm-hmm. but you know it, it's possible that, that they'd read into it or were very vigilant about homo- homoerotic attraction just due to homophobia <laughs> they were very concerned about it wow. uh, and even if they didn't have any reason to see that in me I think it, it's very possible that they were just concerned about it <laughs> so I there were definitely a lot of behaviors mm-hmm. uh, where, and, and moments where they would, I think, try to maintain a, a certain distance from me, even though this was literally, you know, one of my t- two best friends. Mm. And I think that much of our time in high school, they were, were progressively kind of pushing me away. Mm. And sometimes that manifested in like outbursts of anger, and sometimes physical violence and aggression, because that's what a lot of men do, unfortunately.
2: From
0: what you're saying, it seems like you never came out to him,
1: right? No. No, I did not. Which was definitely a safe choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Though I I don't know that I would call it a choice. It's a safe thing that happens. At the the time, I wouldn't have come out to anyone I I identify as, depending on the day, um, queer or bisexual. Mm. Uh, but I'm interested in a lot of people with a lot of different gender identities part of that interest is that I was dating a lot of women
4: mm-hmm. particularly
1: because I, I'd been in locker rooms and a lot of male spaces mm-hmm. and I saw women and experienced women as safer mm. and particularly because of this relationship this relationship is a really great example of a masculine relationship yeah. in my life that, did not, that was not going well Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was kind of able to avoid really thinking about my queer identity because I was just, usually when I was in a relationship, it was a long one and I was dating, I dated a lot of cis women, um, for a long time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So I would not have come out to him, um, Mm -hmm. when we were still friends because I was just in and out of relationships with women, with cis women.
0: Yeah, I think it sounds similar to like your experience with your family that you know things that were not explicitly said to you maybe but that were said uh, I mean this relationship seems more direct there were things that, that were said more directly but still indirectly alluding to your sexual orientation may you feel like you are not in a safe space to come out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially when I was 17 years old, I started dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And safety and like extreme safety and boundaries became even more more important than they would have been.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I was already pretty private by nature, and I became even more private. Yeah, and I just became even more careful about like the sort of person I would give that information to. Mm. So I think that that definitely made, especially since I had been subjected to pretty minor, but definitely real homophobic and queerphobic violence Mm. when I was younger, and then I became constantly preoccupied with the potential of violence, Mm. it felt really scary to come out Mm. because it was just um, opening me up to more potentially and for a while that was just something that i i couldn't have handled the stress of right. psychologically right and by a while i mean like years
0: <laughs> yeah yeah understandable i mean we, we all have to firstly to protect our survival right
1: yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. and i also recognize that like while i i knew of. Uh, violence and my concerns of violence come from a place of disability on the other side of that coin they absolutely come from a place of privilege I'm a a cis white man and I've been able to walk the world until a traumatic event when I was 17 pretty comfortably Mm. and and I think that something when I started dealing with trauma a big theme was that I felt very robbed of um, this sense of safety that I really. Taken for granted, and hadn't really realized I felt like I needed. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to give myself one more reason to have even less safety.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which, which again is self-preservational, but it's it's absolutely the drama of it and how intense it felt. It was rooted in the fact that I'd felt very safe for a very long time. Right. You
4: know? Right. So it felt
0: like a dramatic loss, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I think at times it felt like a loss, and it also just felt like, it really just felt like a dramatic shift.
2: Mm, okay.
1: uh, I didn't find myself really lamenting this, my sense of safety, but I definitely recognized that I'd had it, and that it was gone.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us have that experience when, you know, we have assumptions of our world because because of our past experience, maybe we've been lucky. And then that sudden shift, realizing that actually people or environments that you think were safe is actually not as safe as you think. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's a scary and harsh thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> really is. It just feels like the floor kind of just collapses underneath you.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Since you mentioned this anti Semitic incident, This part of your identity is also something that was subjected to violence. I don't don't know if this is a real incident or something you dreamt about. Both. Okay.
1: Well, in the dream, I was having my head slammed into a locker. In real life, I I was subjected to other forms of violence that were not as (laughs) potentially damaging as having my head slammed into a locker, thankfully. Right. But absolutely.
0: Right. Did that also make you feel like you have lost a sense of safety or was it such a common occurrence that you were sort of psychologically more prepared for it?
1: Well I would say a lot of the violence that I, would say I was subjected to I definitely recognized that it could just happen again mm-hmm. but a lot of it was during a certain period in middle school mm-hmm. and for years in middle school and in high school when I think we're starting to move around the world a little bit more independently and safety kind of becomes more, more of a concern. Like if I'm, I'm going to volunteer somewhere and I'm just taking a train in and going somewhere, that's not really something a 12-year-old does, but mm-hmm. 16-year-old Zach definitely did. Right. Um, it wasn't really happening anymore. So I would I would say that like those things have definitely had an impact on me and certainly had an impact on how I perceive this relationship, especially when I was – in high school, where a lot of the turmoil in this relationship took place, mm-hmm. uh, and, and when I developed post-traumatic stress disorder, I didn't really—I don't—I don't think those incidents affected me as much mm-hmm. um, because they'd stop, okay. and because I was, a, I was just a, again a, just a white man, I just didn't really have the sense that they would start again. <laughs> right, right. I think people definitely perceived me as queer, but a lot of people just perceived me as very. Um, heterosexual and, mm-hmm. and that felt like it was kind of a counterbalance to any fears of violence that I might experience and I did not experience any anti-semitic violence in high school at all I don't think
0: oh that's good That's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 because uh, unfortunately it's is on the rise again so I wasn't sure how recently this particular incident was it's, it's interesting because when you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, especially given your intersectional de- identities, you always wonder how much of a con- contributing factor each facet of that is. Mm-hmm. Are you still friends with this person?
1: No. No, I'm not. Okay. Yeah, I haven't spoken to them in probably six years.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we just haven't, haven't, haven't been in touch at all. Right, right. But
0: going
1: Back to what you're saying, the intersectionality of trauma. I definitely think that for a lot of Jews, and I'm starting to even recognize that more and more. But certainly for myself as a Jewish person, probably I don't know that I can accurately generalize, but I'm just seeing it popping up everywhere. Uh, especially when I start since I started paying attention to it, mm-hmm. um, I think that there's a lot of underlying anxiety mm-hmm. and, about violence, not not just targeted anti-Semitic violence, which is what we're seeing today, but even before those things, mm-hmm. um, and just because of the Holocaust.
2: Right, right.
1: I remember listening to an interview on Mark Maron and Jason Alexander, George Costanza from Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Joked, or Mark Maron joked that like Jews are always ready to run. <laughs> and mm. I was I was at a stand up show a few years ago, and the guy joked that him and his siblings would play this game around the neighborhood where they would guess which neighbors if there was a holocaust would turn them in to the government
0: wow jesus
1: (laughs) and so i think that there's definitely there's a lot of concern related to things like actual violence that is happening in america and just individual people all the time Mm -hmm. and to jews being viewed as less than uh but i mean those things are just come straight from the Holocaust. Those two incidents. And so I, I think that a lot of Jews really carry just their family and their, their, their ancestors haven't gone through the Holocaust and other Jews haven't gone through the Holocaust. So they carry that, that concern with them.
2: Right,
0: right. Yeah, it's, um, you know, when such large-scale, organized, systematic violence happens... I think even for the people who did not directly experience it, whether it's because they're further down the generations or because their families were the lucky few who lived elsewhere during that time, the fact is that collective memory, that collective trauma still affects how we view the world, how we deal with the world, how vigilant we become you know, towards... How safe we feel just at a base level. Your baseline for safety is different. Mm -hmm. I've heard that from a Jewish author whose parents were survivors. And she talks about how that has affected her despite the fact that she never experienced it herself. Just the stories that her parents told her throughout the years makes a direct beeline to her psychological issues. It is very important and I think under-acknowledge how intergenerational trauma can contribute to certain behavioral norms and changes. Uh-huh. Again, I'm really, really glad that at least you personally have stopped experiencing anti-Semitism, at least in high school. So that is a very good thing to have that. Uh, at least personal kind of safe period, right, to, to experience that.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I picked my poem, Babylon, because it is more of a daydream, but also has a sense of reverie to it because it, it takes place in a fictional setting. I'm going to read that now, and then we can talk about it.
4: Sounds great.
0: A stroll through hanging gardens led me to close inspection of the unyielding sentry carved from sandstone, skin now weathered by windswept kisses, each breeze taking a souvenir not knowing where time will carry it in the expanding universe. An inadvertent stumble brought my hands up against his muscular torso. Embedding granularity like pimpricks sought, interrogation of details, too personal jarring cognitive dissonance. Smiles piqued by curiosity freeze amid confusion. How can paradise be this flawed? The mind is sucked into a maelstrom of equations, innumerals strange to the familiarity of their nomenclature. Rocking back on my heels allow distance to recapture the allure of russet shell and the frozen features no longer connected to the momentary scrape.
1: Wonderful poem, wonderful poem. Thank you. When I read this, I knew exactly, (laughs) or I I felt it really connected to dreams I've had about you and both it seemed speculative, which I was really excited about about and also, I, I, I think, well, I have a couple of questions, but I'm really curious about, there's this sense to me of, like, unrequited love or attraction, and maybe there was a brief scrape with this person, and it didn't necessarily amount to anything, or what the narrator hoped it might. I would just love to hear more about maybe what that meant in real life, or just also what that theme means to you in the poem.
0: There is definitely, I think, all of the things that you picked up. The only quite a bit is more because of COVID than anything else. COVID and also more uh, geographical distance. There was an interaction with uh, this particular person that went unexpectedly badly. There was a non-consensual crossing of boundaries which is why and and I also talk about freezing as one does in these situations and unfortunately worse situations because sometimes especially when you like a person and that happens your brain is like having a little bit of a meltdown and you're like I can't process this I don't understand what is going on here what's going on so there's definitely that part of it but as I said Prior to starting to read this poem, this is set in a uh, imagined place, Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. The Hanging Gardens, They're, unfortunately, that no longer exists.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think I, I really enjoyed that you put that in the title and set it in a Hanging Garden in the first line, in order to communicate that this is. As pretty much as strongly as you can implicitly communicate that that this didn't actually happen exactly as it's being described, and I'm sorry that I'm sorry about that crossing your boundaries. That sounds that sounds awful. Thank yep, you. That's just that's just hard.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know I also wanted to set it in Babylon because well there were several reasons for it. Also I wanted to give people the feeling of how you know in the beginnings of a relationship or what you think might be a relationship, and especially if there's mutual attraction, there is it it just feels like paradise, right? So it it has that. Yeah. Yeah, it has that feeling. And this was actually written to a prompt, where the prompt was to write something about where you'd want to be or where you imagine you might be. And, you know, obviously, there is still... I think you could understand this with your poem as well is like when you experience that first violation of boundaries while you are in a crush with someone your mind is and your Entire emotional self is trying to process both emotions at the same time and Sometimes the crush lasts longer than the anger over the violation
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, yeah for sure for sure so like, I mean, based on that, do you find yourself when you write something like this, and especially when you like put it out into the world, do you find yourself like wish wanting them to see it, like hoping that they might just stumble upon it? This person, like, do you, do you write towards them in huh. any way, or do you even maybe think like this is this is for me to process this?
0: I write firstly for me to process things. At yeah. the same time, I've had a separate talk with this person to address this violation. And I appreciate it some of the ways to which he reacted to it. I do not appreciate some of the other ways (laughs) that he not necessarily reacted to the talk necessarily, but other elements of it. It's it's a little bit too complex to go into here. But um, Mm -hmm. so I have very mixed feelings but you know to answer your question more directly is that this is something that I would be willing to read in front of that person um so it's not something I want them to stumble upon because you know until now it's not really put out there likely I will Mm -hmm. read this in front of him
1: Mm. sometimes when I've I've I speculatively I do it to kind of create some distance between myself And what I'm actually thinking about, maybe that jump-started that train of thought, Mm. do you feel like this poem came from that goal of like not wanting to say the exact thing, but still wanting to explore it and maybe express it just in a less explicit way? Like what does speculation do for you in this poem?
0: When I go into a poem, I have no (laughs) idea what I'm going to end up writing. And so with this particular poem, the Stroll Through, A Stroll Through Hanging Gardens, I do not realize that it was going to become this. (laughs) You know? So... uh, Wow. I don't believe I knew exactly, at least during the first line, because the third line already sets, sets it up. But the first line is more out of the continual feelings I have. Because the prompt was, where would you want to be? So... I think in writing our poetry, sometimes than reading it, and also you know having a discussion about it. Right now, it also makes me recognize you know the duality of my feelings. Mm-hmm. And and I think wow. I feel like that's also present, maybe to a less degree in your poem because you had already cut off your relationship with that person, even though it's, you haven't explicitly written down something until earlier this year, the fact is, you have already done the actions to terminate the relationship. Whereas this is more like, I am more interested in uh, gaining better understanding of the person to see if they're willing to make changes to prevent these things from happening is this just a tip of the iceberg kind of thing because when you're getting to know someone right again in a relationship where there's a possibility of things going on a mutual you know affection whatever and then a violation of trust happens then you always wonder or when you you know like when you become more mature and you have had some relationships under your belt especially with similar experience then you're like okay how much of a warning sign is this? Is this person still worth my continued investment of feelings?
1: Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. I'm so happy to hear that I'm not the only person who measures uh, emotional commitments that way. I feel like I'm able to calculate or quantify how much how much emotional energy I'm putting into a person and then try to calculate how much they're putting into me or how much negative energy this relationship might give and then i and then i make comparisons I, i'm glad that <laughs> i'm not the only person who thinks of relationships that way yeah. i think I think, I, I think of it as being healthy you know per, i think protecting your energy is super important
0: yeah yeah i think so and you know obviously i think for both of us the calculation is not done on a physical ledger it is done as a reflection on it and also based on our self respect and respect for our own time and energy right because we don't have an infinite amount of time we do not have an infinite amount of energy so to me especially given how busy i am i want to be more conscious and be more self respectful in terms of how much i invest in certain relationships
1: mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely
0: and on the other hand you know the fact is the heart will just will not listen to the mind in this specific way the heart will crush for however long it wants to crush so there is always some uncontrollable aspects to it you just feel that longing you feel that wanting things to work out especially things that appear in the beginning that it would work out and then when it doesn't work out you you still hold on to that hope.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of going back to what you said about duality of feeling, I feel like poems, and not just poems, really writing, uh, especially about relationships, can be such a, a special and actually sometimes kind of taxing, but really simple way to, like you're saying, like discover hope
4: mm-hmm.
1: and, and kind of remember good things that you might have forgotten. Um, and I, I think that oftentimes we write from a place of pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, or I think that's where a lot of things start, yeah. you know, um, or sadness, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really special thing to either find hope through writing or find a, a reason to want to hope, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. As you said, hope is very important, right, because we don't want to – get cornered into a place where we think, okay, I'm never going to find the person that is right for me. Because the fact is, there are so many choices out there. I mean, it is just, for a human being uh, on an average lifespan, it is really an unlimited amount of choices. And so I think we should continue to explore and hope is that engine that runs that continued exploration of what is possible, who is out there. I hope people realize that they have an unlimited amount of choice and that if they run into a relationship where they feel like their boundaries are violated and when they point out that fact, if the person does not respond in the respectful way that you expect them to, that people move on and people go f- spend their time finding better choices because as i said to a person with an average lifespan the choices are limitless
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and and it's a re- it's a really powerful and important thing to set boundaries and and really take as much control as you can of who you're give who you give yourself to
0: mhm yeah
1: I think it's it's really empowering in the way that people talk about scheduling and and, and making to do lists. It's just like except you're kind of structuring your whole life and your relationships.
0: Right, right, and also you know like there's the sense of you can you can be flexible and still protect your time. Right, you can schedule empty time where that's available for whatever comes up. I think we can balance having scheduled meetings to. Having chunks of time where, you know, if things come up, we deal with it. You know, emergencies or wonderful opportunities that you never expected. I think, you know, life is that balance between what is within our control and what is outside of it. And I think dealing with that in a healthy way is also important for us. Again, we have choices. We should never think of the person that we are fervently in love with as someone that we cannot live without because there are other choices, especially when the relationship becomes abusive, when the relationship, you know, whether psychologically or physically, um, because a lot of relationships can be psychologically abusive. And I think we tell our partners with our actions more than our words no matter how explicitly we say our words our actions tell them more of what boundaries we set
1: mm-hmm. for sure for sure and it's definitely it's something i'm thinking a lot about particularly in my relationship with men mm-hmm. um because as as they are i've tended to find them to be much more sensitive to feedback on boundaries and on any kind of um, anything that they've done
4: mm-hmm. um,
1: that impacted me negatively. Mm-hmm. And it's a really complicated thing to, mm-hmm. to set those boundaries in, in ways that's, that still maintain those relationships. And I think it, sh- it should be easy. And with certain people, it can be. Mm-hmm. But with many people, especially in, I think, a world that's become hypersensitive, to any kind of feedback. I think people really take things a lot harder than they should right now. Mm. Um, Do you have challenges with that?
0: Yeah, it depends on the person. Again, with this particular person, I felt the feedback itself went well. I mean, there are other aspects. It's, like I said, very complex and too too long to explain in this particular episode. But I, I definitely see a sense of hope. I see certain underlying actions still that are problematic at the same time. I don't want to go into a relationship thinking, oh, this is a person I need to fix, because then again, it's not a healthy relationship.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: At the same time, given what I've told you about what's happened with me lately, I have um, found people who claim to uphold certain standards, certain ideals in life, yet when it comes to their own actions, I'm not sure if they are aware of the fact that they are crossing boundaries in the same way that a predator would. I think they think of them themselves as somebody who couldn't possibly do that sort of thing, yet they do do it. I think for certain people, people who even despise aggressive predatory behavior, they don't necessarily recognize when they do it themselves, because they define that aggressive boundary crossing boundary destroying behavior as something that's, oh, only this equals that particular thing. You know, like it has to be physical violence in order to be recognized as abuse sort of analogy. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, we we know that physical abuse part of the reason why it leaves such a long lasting mark on the victims is because it is the physical on top of the psychological. And it's the psychological that's even more difficult to heal.
1: Absolutely. Something just kind of came together for me, based on a couple things that you were saying about like setting boundaries and in your time and energy, especially during COVID, when our energies are divided in weird and new ways and often, for many people, more difficult ways. Are you setting boundaries with yourself or with other people differently when it comes to, like, making time for writing or for other creative pursuits? How has that been?
0: One of the things I've done proactively is to join workshops, which helps to generate creative works. In terms of my own, just, like, within myself alone practice, I don't set aside time to write. I more or less let the inspiration come whenever it comes but I do uh, now, uh, more, much more than before, I tend to ignore the muse when they come in the middle of the <laughs> night. Sometimes I, I still write it out, but a lot of time I'm just like, come back to me when I'm rested, I'm going to go to sleep. But this is something that's somewhat new to me, and so I'm, I'm definitely also setting um, my time And being very conscious and practicing taking real time off, like real weekends. So that's definitely something Uh, I've been practicing, especially given how much psychological stress COVID has been on me more like, um, yeah, more personally, because I know a lot of people out there are experiencing both the psychological and physical stress, but fortunately for me, it's more the psychological stress. And again, it's very intersectional because I am Asian American, and there is an underlying fear when I go out. And part of the reason I recognize that I try to go out as little as possible is the underlying fear that of uh, anti-Asian sentiment, especially now, especially with COVID,
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's. Oh, I've seen a few of those, and it's like just just read about them, and it's, it's a really awful thing that's happening. Especially given our history of which never really stopped, but certainly I think had a rise during and post World War II of anti sentiment. It's it's really frustrating that that's happening again, and that our president. Is, and, and an entire party is, is enabling it.
0: Right. Well, it actually predates World War II, unfortunately. It's the fact that it predates that, that like the uh, internment of, of Japanese Americans was allowed to take place. If you look at Dr. Seuss' mm-hmm. books, for instance, or not, I, I don't think the Dr. Seuss books, but Dr. Seuss' writing is the history. He had well anti-Asian sentiments. He wrote anti-other peoples of color as well. So he he was quite prejudiced. And the fact that he is so popular and is troubling because I I think most of the teaching of his work is not accompanied by the talk of the problems, the prejudices that he perpetuated with some of his. Work So I think it's very important to acknowledge that despite the fact that for a lot of people, I imagine, it is a discomfort to admit to yourself that you grew up on something like Dr. Seuss, that it is so integral to many people's childhood and happy childhood memories, yet they did not know about his bigoted works against um, different minority groups. And I think that's very important for us to acknowledge. Not to belittle his other, his talents, certainly he has talents, but we have to recognize both in teaching his work if we choose to continue to teach his work. And I I think I've had this conversation uh, most recently with a recent episode that released. Um, Again, it's about how do we deal with problematic artists and shouldn't we as a society expect better, especially when we are uplifting talents? Shouldn't we at least put into consideration this person in totality? Because I think we should get rid of the mindset that somehow talented people have to be assholes. Yeah. Or, or worse, or criminals actually. Not, not even just assholes, but actual criminals. And we should expect better.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. It, 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 it just the game of boundary setting. I've been thinking about this a lot, just when it comes to politicians. Just the way that, especially the social media, I think kind of enables, this obviously happened before that, but I think social media just makes it harder and more ingrained. Mm-hmm. Um, the celebrity deadness of politicians, it makes it really difficult for a lot of folks to wrap their heads around these politicians being wrong, when of course they're wrong sometimes, and of course maybe they're even doing things that you disagree with, but a lot of folks don't even want to think about the nuances of, of people who they previously idolized, because they're stuck in idolizing them, and it's just it's really dangerous with artists too, for sure, for sure, especially since, you know, obviously, you have nostalgia, you know, politicians have pretty short-lived careers, you know, a book could Dr. Seuss was writing in, what, the 20s? 1920s? You know, and mm. still has, still people are can't really uh, let go of, or really latch on to him being, I, the thing I've heard is anti-Semitic.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, I'm really, I got yelled at about that while I was working at Barnes & Noble, that we even have Dr. Seuss books on the shelf. So I'm really disappointed that I was giving incomplete information by this customer. Mm. Um, I, I hadn't read about, I didn't, continue to read about it um which I, I i feel like i should i should now i didn't even know about his statement feelings about folks of color but i, I could have assumed that it would not be good
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think one of the things that we need to realize is that we all have prejudices we all make unfounded assumptions which i think is what prejudice is at the same time i think admitting to that allows us to look at The statements we make and and also to learn right because I feel like life is a learning experience we are born ignorant uh, but hopefully we die knowing a little bit better it's not a guarantee and it definitely takes a lot more effort and just admitting to the fact that we can all make unfounded assumptions that lead to prejudicial actions and statements is very important and as you said you know with celebrities with People who just hold on to their idols, I think there is a sense of feeling personally attacked somehow when their beloved celebrities are being called out for wrongdoing. Which to me, on the one hand, I can see it sort of as an ego issue because, you know, maybe people are taking it, that as somehow, oh, you're questioning my judgment. But it's not necessarily that, right? I, I don't, again, it's like celebrities are one of the those things that I, I'm like, you can't possibly know a celebrity. You do not uh-huh. comprehend them un, unless you have personal, direct personal relationships with that person. I, even then, you know, think of how many times, just like within this context of our two poems, for instance, your best friend betrayed you in many ways, let you down in many ways. And this is somebody you've known for years. And then they reveal that side to you. And then now celebrities, how the heck do we know even even get that close, even have that sort of detailed knowledge of their personal behavior? Yeah, everybody on social media is saying, oh yeah, I have a valid opinion on this. I'm like, are you kidding me? How would you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, um,
1: exactly, exactly, especially when we're talking about someone who's dead, <laughs> <laughs> and people, people still defend them, and also that just makes them, when they're that old, they're even more likely to have awful views. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know less about them, but and, and you know that they're coming out of the, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it might be. Of course they probably have some biases that would have gotten stamped out of them if they were alive now, you know, or that we would have tried to stamp out of them.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, society as a whole definitely was a different place. At the same time, I think individuals are certainly many who were able to rise above society's flow, as it were, to still stand up for various groups of people, and that's how women were able to get the vote, right, because, and, and, you know, the, the <coughs> civil rights movement, or even the abolition of slavery, again, is because of people who were able to rise above the flow of societal sentiments at the time. And those people are appreciative. but we also have to recognize how much effort that took for them to stand up against this overwhelming acceptance of unacceptable things from our view as modern reviewers of history.
1: Absolutely. I think I was reading something, I think this is in the context of the Holocaust. Someone was writing about just how rare it is that someone is willing to go against that current. Yeah. And like actually trying to quantify how rare that person is. And it's um, particularly when it's actually dangerous to them, even when they're just fighting against the prevailing sentiment. I think that thinking about how few people we talk about right now as having done that historically, that's also because people are missing, particularly women and and queer folks. Mm -hmm. But also just, it, it was really very few people who had that in them. It's a real sacrifice. For one, of one's safety and kind of energy and a lot of folks who might believe what they believe don't necessarily want to give all of that. And I think that that just makes folks who are going against that current even more special. yeah sport. and it also should create more empathy with folks who did not do that and, mm-hmm. and uh, just to have us like recognize like it's and be able to like just recognize that they were wrong. I think, I think we need to really criticize folks, but we're not saying that they were wholly terrible people, you know? I think that that would kind of dispel some of that defensiveness that we were talking about.
0: Right, right. I think to recognize how difficult it is to stand up against societal currents, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. At the same time, there's been studies that basically said something like 23% of society is needed in order to change the current. So it's a very minority wow. minority of people needed to change a, a current of society. So it's very important to know that both for good and for bad. So I think uh-huh. it is very important for people to realize that not only for them to stand up to wrongdoing early, because when people do that earlier, uh-huh. the risk, to themselves is less actually than when the entire current has changed, then it becomes mob root and then it becomes much more dangerous for whichever individual. So, stopping it early is very important as well. So, bystander intervention is very important earlier on. The earlier, the better to call these things out to say, we won't accept this. At the same time, you know, as we see from history, most people do not call things out until they have direct experience with these discriminations and problems, and that actually allows society to turn worse. It's, mm-hmm. it's sad. Yeah. It's, basically, we don't always act in our own best interest because we think of the immediate as somehow not related to us.
1: For sure, for sure. That- I think this goes back to boundary setting, like like I mean you've seen this in relationships in your own life, I'm, relationships yeah. in your own life I'm sure that, that there are folks, I've definitely found that when I wait to set a boundary and it's crossed several times, it almost always, setting that boundary goes worse <laughs> if I've yeah. waited, you know, yeah. and, and I think it's ridiculously, ridiculously important that we become very used to setting those boundaries early, mm-hmm. politically. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that that's super powerful. Yeah. percent. It's also a lot of people. 23% is a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of numbers, it's a lot of people, but, you know, it depends on the amount of groups, but, you know, still it's less than a quarter. So think of how easily, relatively speaking, societal flow uh, can be changed. Uh, and, and I think we you know, this is something that we need to keep in mind. When we say we want to build a better world, how much are we willing to contribute to that by action, not just by our words. Um, Uh So on that note, uh, before I let you go, I, I really appreciate you spending time talking with me about your poem. I would love for you to tell us One, if you have any favorite virtual events that you would recommend to people. And also, two, how people can follow you on social media.
1: Virtual readings on Facebook have been the joy of my recent life. I got a (laughs) Carmen Maria Machado read at the Piper Center virtually a few months ago. Um, There's so many things happening that are just open to the public and posted on Facebook. Um, So just search them. And I'm not on Twitter or Instagram, but absolutely. Um, Feel free to search my name on Facebook. And you will find me. There are very few Zach Semmel's, if any other ones. So cool. yeah, you can find me there.
0: Wonderful. And uh, do you have a website?
1: I do. I do have a website as well. It's just on zaxemmel.wordpress.com. So feel free to look at me there and you'll be able to see links to my writing as well.
0: Great. zaxemmel.wordpress.com. Right. You got it. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, It was such a pleasure, and I'm so glad to have done this, and it was great to to virtually meet you.
0: Yeah, same here.
1: (laughs) And to get to know some of your work, too.
0: I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week. And I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.